Welcome to another fun-filled episode of Rank and Review. I am your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons, and my good friend Mireille Smith is going to join me to talk about six art horror movies. Uh, these are sort of second-tier, lower-tier, uh, you know, limited-release horror movies that uh, sometimes will sneak under the radar, or horror movies that just take a very arty approach to their subject matters. So that is the business you're going to be plugging into your ears this very day. If you have feedback, you can send that feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankandreview.ca. And you should go into the podcast with the understanding that there will be spoilers for the six movies being reviewed and probably some coarse language, especially from me. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. Um, all right, so I just pressed record just so we could get on started because we're on the clock tonight. <laughs> Mireille Smith is back on Rank and Review, and I'm very happy about that. And we're going to be talking about some dark, dark, psychological, I've sort of called it art house movies. A lot of these are like second tier released. You'd see it sort of the little theater, not at the big theater, or, you know, in this day and age, it would go direct to streaming and disappear into the ether almost completely. Um, so I guess I would start by saying... What's your position on art horror, in quotation marks, or would you define these as that? Well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't notice if you had um, named the group or anything, and I was searching for the common thread, and I was having a bit of a hard time, so I was going to ask you what grouped these movies, because they're almost all revenge movies, except one. They're almost all, you know, about rituals or ritualistic behavior except one they're almost all about you know have a female lead except one so yeah i guess art house movies make no sense make makes more sense um, there's a psychological angle i think even even in like honeymoon when you could say that the influence is external it, the horror of the movie is the change that is happening in one of our main characters and I think that, for me, that would be the through line in all of these movies, in that uh, either a character is revealed something or dramatically changes, or usually both, <laughs> within the course of the movies. But I've got a weird take on it, because I, as much as I love horror movies, I, 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 I like to think I like them unpretentiously. <laughs> I like... 
a fun, dumb horror movie that knows what it is, you know? I, I don't necessarily like a, a, a horror movie that's used to, to harangue me or wag its finger at me, particularly. One of the things I like about horror movies is that they are kind of goofy, and we like them anyway. <laughs> um, and I think that sometimes, if you're too self-serious, it actually can detract from the horror for me. I think it's a similar issue I have with, like, David Lynch movies. I can appreciate them, but I, I, I have a hard time really loving them. Like, I, 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 would, I would rather you just made a straight horror movie most of the time. Now, there are cases where the artistic horror approach absolutely works. I'm not, like, against it. But I'm much more likely to watch a movie like Nightmare on Elm Street or Tremors than I am to watch a movie like Darling or The Eyes of My Mother. <laughs> so I don't know if I'd call myself a fan necessarily, moreover that I'm just sort of a fan of the horror genre. But this wouldn't be my go-to. <laughs> no, I don't even know if I could you know, name any more, you know, I just don't have the, I don't have the background to, <laughs> to talk about art house horror movies in particular, so. But I think that's going to be a thing that's different about these movies as their approach are usually less conventional, or even if they are conventional in Mandy, they're, they're like, they're, they're set on such a huge scale, like it, it, it becomes something else. Most of these movies don't seem to be taking place in the real world as we understand it. it it's this other Eraserhead universe where everything is arch and weird and arty. And in the right day and in the right headspace, I can get into that. But again, it's not my general thing. Overall, I mean, without getting into all of it, did you have an okay time with the list? Or is this going to be a, gonna be a tough, tough conversation? Yeah, that's very common. Ex ex yeah, except for one, I didn't, you know, I didn't actively dislike any of them. So, okay. so yeah, I thought they were at least interesting enough in their own way. That's good. I think you might have done better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else you'd like to say about these six movies before I list them off and we start talking, ranking, and reviewing? We'll call them art house horrors, will we? Do we agree on this? Sure, yes, boss. <laughs> Um, Mireille Smith and myself, your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons, are going to be reviewing a film called Darling, about a woman going crazy. <laughs> a, a movie called The Eyes of My Mother, about another woman who's going crazy. <laughs> a movie called Midsummer, about a woman who's crazy and then goes a little crazy, I think. <laughs> but it can be debated. It will be debated, <laughs> Honeymoon, uh, about a, a couple that uh, retreat to the woods in Canada, and uh, the, the newlywed wife sees a light in the woods and uh, makes her crazy. <laughs> Neon Demon is about a young model in trying to make it in Hollywood, and she finds out that herself and everyone there is crazy. And Mandy is... Probably the most Nicolas Cage, Nicolas Cage movie that we've had in quite some time. And he recently starred in a movie as Nicolas Cage. So yep. 
that is an impressive feat. Those are the six art house quote unquote horror movies that we're going to discuss today. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Boom. Is it true what they say about this place? No old ghost stories, but the caretaker threw herself off the upstairs balcony. Ma'am, there's one room that I can't get into. Don't concern yourself with that room, dear. Am I clear? Yes, ma'am. Waiting for anybody? I was waiting for you. They have got to tell you this kind of thing before you move in, right? That it's haunted? It's true. So, um, Mickey Keating is the name of the director of this movie, Darling. And uh, he does super low-budget horror movies for Glass-Eyed Picks, which is a distribution production company run by Larry Fessenden, who is sort of the low-budget filmmaker, if you ask me. <laughs> like, uh, he's just consistently produced very individual, very cheap, under-the-radar work. And he seems fine to keep doing that. And Mickey Keating seems to be in this same sort of thing. He he produces quite a few movies. He gets one out every couple of years, but they don't seem to make a lot of ripples on the water. But unlike a lot of mainstream filmmakers, he's actually getting a catalog of films. The thing with Darling is that like I get what he's going for here. I just did a whole series of uh, episodes on the 60s, so I'd been watching a lot of 60s horror movies. And this is absolutely what he's plugging into for Darling. He shoots it in black and white deliberately. It is about this woman's descent into madness. It very deliberately references Roman Polanski's um, repulsion. And uh, I, think, uh, I think in the special features he talks about stealing the soundscape and the vibe from Eraserhead. And it's this very bizarre portrait of a woman who's asked to take care of this old, possibly haunted, possibly cursed house. And how it, it takes all of her flaws and sort of magnifies them and causes her to fall apart. Or maybe she was just completely crazy when she got there. I can appreciate what he's doing and I can understand the references that he's making. And I can even understand how he's not bad at doing it considerably like in a, in a low budget framework. But I have to admit, I laughed a few times in this movie when I don't think I was supposed to laugh. And I, I, half of the movies we're reviewing this episode are less than an hour and a half long, and half of them are over two hours long. This one was less than an hour and a half long, but man, at times it really felt long. There's barely any dialogue for the first half an hour of the movie, and I'm sitting here and I'm trying to like it, and I'm trying to engage with the movie, and I understand the references he's making. I see what he's trying to do, but I'm just not connecting to the movie and that's sort of where I start with Darling like I get it but it's not my thing but maybe it's yours <laughs> where does Mick stand on it uh, I 
thought that it was lacking in story. Um, but this was kind of, um, I actually, this was the one for me that had the, um, atmospheric mood that scares me because I can just, you know, for me to be alone in a giant house like that, for me, that's scary. So I can totally relate to that. And especially when you're alone in a house, like, you know, I'm going to check the rooms, but in a house that big, by the time you get to the last room and checked it to make sure no one's there, you know, someone could be in the, in the first room that you checked and you have to do it all over again, right? Yeah. So I totally tap into that feeling. Um, so I thought that was good. However, all of those... Um, I don't know the correct terminology, but when she's seeing all of those flashes of scary things in front of her eyes, right? You know, I maybe jumped for the first one, but it kept happening over and over again, and I thought that was overdone. Um, so yeah, kind of a mix, whether I appreciated the atmosphere and the mood, because I did, and then it was just too much. Right. Well... Yeah, I do think that the uh, sort of jump scare, boo, flashes of what's going on in her mind became a crutch after a point. Like, the first couple times, oh, I guess that's that's what we're doing. But, like, uh, yeah, the uh, repetition of it took away any of its power. Um, and uh, the same thing, like, I get, like, this, she stops answering the phone, so the phone's constantly ringing, and this is supposed to be this, like, irritating, driving madness thing. And it works in that it's driving me fucking crazy while I'm watching the movie. Yeah, but <laughs> so loud. Yeah. Yeah. Sean Young is in the movie. Uh, I don't know who that is. She was uh, sort of an up-and-coming, gonna-be-a-super-big-thing actress in the 80s. She was in Blade Runner and a few other high-profile things. And I don't know, there's there's two schools of thought. There's one that she kind of went crazy and uh, burned all of her bridges. And another one that she was just blacklisted. But she's never really had the career that you'd think that, or that she either or anyone else at the time thought that she deserved because she was pretty talented. And it's just interesting. They've got this sort of interesting high profile actress and she's just basically gives her the talk at the beginning of the movie. Like, this is the house, this is the history, call me if you need anything, I'm sure it'll be fine. And I kept on waiting for that other shoe to drop, A, because, like, did she deliberately put her there? Is there, like, <laughs> is there some sort of witchcraft background going on into this uh, and that Sean Young is directly involved in? Like, what are we going to do with that character? It's not about her. She, is, she shows up, she sets the stage, and then she leaves, and that is it. Um, and I guess I shouldn't put more weight on it just because of the size of the actress, but I, I just expected more some for some reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess, you know, by the end, since it's um, happening all over again, I did get the impression that she is feeding the house. Right. Um, but yeah, aside from that... But again, we're all asked to put it together ourselves, more or less. Like, uh, she finds out that the the woman was fragile before she even arrived to the house, and she, whether she's truthful or not, thinks that maybe it wouldn't have been a good match if she'd known that at the time. I also had a hard time understanding a lot of the phone conversations because, as loud as the phone rings were, the other side of the conversation was deliberately very soft. 
I think that the main actress has got some really strong moments, but uh, again, I spent the first half an hour of the moment just wanting someone to say something. There was, they were so much preoccupied with setting the stage and setting the mood and setting the vibe of the house, and I do think they successfully do that, but at the cost of anything else happening in the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. And then when she goes out and drops her inverted crucifix and then the guy picks it up and hands it back to her and then she's convinced that she recognized him from before and he's wronged her in some way she invites him back to the house and then brutally kills him stabs him but yeah and I don't know I I guess she was suitably upset when she checks his ID and finds out that it's not the guy she thought it was but (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I just... And again, like, as an audience member, like, are we asked to believe or disbelieve her at any given moment? And does the film ever give us any true answers, or are we just allowed to think about it? And again, I fall back on the Lynch argument. It's okay to leave it open and leave us to be, like, chewing over things, but I want to believe that you, as a writer or as a filmmaker, made a choice. And again... I'm not sure that that happened here. Yeah, and they don't show us what's in the room, (laughs) and of course that's annoying, and yeah, I don't think they thought about what was in the room either, now that you mention it. (laughs) (laughs) So, I, I mean, and this is, again, perhaps me, this sort of waft of pretension kind of hurts the scares a little bit for me. I can see that it's like, it's got its disturbing moments, and I get what they're trying to do, and I do think that this actress has the right look and feel for this type of movie. But I also should confess that even at its apex, like, I'm not a big fan of repulsion. I'm not a big fan of, like, these... Let's spend two hours watching this woman psychologically self-destruct movies. I mean, like, they had their place, they had their moment, but I'm, I'm not sure, like, what's left to say on the subject. And I think if you're going to do another one, you're going to have to bring something more to the table. I think the last one that tried to do it somewhat successfully would maybe be Black Swan. But I don't believe that, you know, all women are, are, are fragile and going to become completely untethered. In fact, I think closer to the opposite is true. I know a lot of women that have survived horrifying, horrifying things and are still more together somehow than I am. <laughs> yeah, I don't... That's not... I don't get that from this kind of movie, though. Like, yeah. if, that's, if that's what they're saying, that's not what I'm picking up. So, Good. I don't know, maybe I refute that altogether. <laughs> There's just a lot of like movies me, about women who are dealing with a past trauma that uh, eventually bubbles over into full-on madness. It, it's a thing that happens a lot in, in horror movies that I've noticed. like this and doesn't have very much dialogue it allows your mind to wander a little bit and you know the nitpicky side comes out like has she never cleaned up blood before like the way she was cleaning up there's no way that it's it was ridiculous you know she's running her little cloth against the floor and then rubbing her own legs with it and stuff like that's just ridiculous that's not how you clean up after a murder and it goes on for a long time it's just a long steady shot of her not very successfully cleaning blood from a bathroom (laughs) and she only fills 
up one garbage bag with all of those body parts and not a very full garbage bag either. Yeah. And why was her suitcase so heavy? They made such a big show of her dragging her suitcase up the stairs when she first gets there. And from what they show later on, she's only got clothing in there. And it was as though it was a hundred pound suitcase. Yeah, I don't know if they were trying to make her seem weak and fragile and small in the environment. But she got a garbage bag full of body parts out into the hallway with no problem, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) This movie's fake. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, I think we're on the same page then. Like, for a micro budget movie, it's not. I mean, what were they trying to do and did they succeed? I think Mickey Keating succeeded in doing what he was trying to do. It just wasn't a meal that I particularly enjoyed. <laughs> I don't do this very often. Do what? Go home with people? Neither do I. Your house is so neat. Thank you. Is this your mother? Yes. What did she do? She was a surgeon in Portugal. What kind? Eyes. We used to do the sections together. What happened to her? Sometimes I, I, I'll hear myself in an old review and then just like realize I'm a complete hypocrite, you know? Oh, I've seen this movie a thousand times, ergo it sucks. I've seen this movie a thousand times, but this one did it so well, I like it anyway. I just talked about Darling, which is a black and white movie of this portrait of a slow sort of falling insanity of a, of a woman. Uh, and really that description could be the same for the eyes of my mother, although I have to say... I liked The Eyes of My Mother considerably more as a film than I did Darling. Although, did I enjoy it might be another question. (laughs) This is an impossibly ugly, macabre, otherworldly fairy tale that is gorgeously photographed in black and white. But they're gorgeously photographing a a nightmare, just a, a horrifying origin story of this you know serial killer kind of I guess she destroys people more than kills them by the time she kills them she's really doing them a service in this movie and again it it all starts with her childhood uh, growing up on the farm her mother is teaching her about because she'd been an an eye doctor (laughs) an optometrist there it is an eye surgeon, and she shows her how to remove eyes from the cattle when she's doing the butchering. And uh, you get the feeling like this woman had, uh, before she'd come to this farm, had a bigger life ahead of her than, you know, cutting, butchering the meat. And her resentment has somehow seeped into her daughter a little bit. And after a very terrifying home invasion takes her mother from her, uh, and... uh, 
she's fundamentally changed. Uh, she can, she ends up learning from the killer that killing can make you feel amazing, and by keeping him as this deformed pet, if that's how we can authentically interpret the film, which I will get your thoughts on as well, she develops a taste to, in order to fend off her loneliness as a now adult person, having lost every other contact in her life, she creates companions by rendering them blind and unable to speak and imprisoning them in a barn. But the movie, it sometimes to me even starts to make me wonder how much of what we're seeing is real and, and, and how much is sort of interpretive. It's ghastly. <laughs> like the movie is ghastly. But it doesn't overstay its welcome again. It's like an hour and 15 minutes long. And I think it's doing what it's doing quite well. It's in a way that, like, I'm sort of impressed and a little bit repulsed by it. But what does it all mean and how do I feel about it afterwards? Well, uh, I'm going to put the ball in your court. <laughs> she becomes are a little different than how you worded it Um, because I mean sticking with the sort of fairy tale-ish kind of idea she I felt like her learning from her mother is purely you know scientific learning and had that been coupled with a mother's love and showing how to process emotion and all that, you know, would have grown up fine with both sides. But since the one side was cut off, it's almost like, um, you know, the, the compassion and the motherly guidance and all that was just amputated. And then she only continues in, in the other vein. That's kind of how I saw it, like right. rather than learning from the, the murderers and stuff. I mean, sure that, um, that comes to play too, but I just felt like it was just the absence of her mother that just caused her to only focus on, um, you know, I, I guess the surgery, the surgery right. part of, of her mother. Well, she sort of got this, uh, I hate to be dismissive, but this sort of farm kid indifference to death yeah. and viscera. Yeah, and... Uh, just, I might even say, well, I'm not a parent, so I guess I, I don't really know, but I kind of, sometimes I see that indifference in kids just in general, Yeah, <laughs> you know, like just how they can um, look at things and... But she never outgrew that. Right. And uh, she, her indifference didn't extend to her family, but once her family was gone, there was nothing... So I felt like it's some sort of combination of her wanting to connect with somebody but not being able to. And uh, this is how she expresses herself, her surgeries. Yes, 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 I agree. (laughs) Yes, and uh, once her father died and she kept him around for a little bit and, you know, had him propped up in the living room watching TV (laughs) and stuff and, yeah. Yeah, um, and then, of course, his time comes and she has to dismember him and put him in the fridge. <laughs> There's a weird ritual about putting pieces in the fridge, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
but again, I don't, I, I can't fully close my hand on it. I don't understand it, but I'm not frustrated with it in the same way I was with Darling. Although, like, in a weird way, there's a lot of similarities. <laughs> but the imagery is so much starker and stronger. Like, any still of this film could be like a, like a photograph you hung on a wall. I don't know who would put it on their wall, but it, it is considered. It is very meticulously made and precisely made. Like, uh, I get the feeling like this uh, Pesci character, what's his name, sorry, uh, Nicholas Pesci is the name of the writer-director. He got to do the nouveau version of The Ring, which unfortunately bombed quite substantially, uh, I think, off of the strength of this picture. But I wouldn't give up on him as a, a filmmaker, You're just on the basis of that. But again, I think these lower budgets sort of feel them out. Things might be more of his wheelhouse than doing a big, you know, keep the popcorn flowing kind of horror picture. And the music was very well chosen too, like the Portuguese um, music that was in the background was, you know, lovely and fitting. And and also I like that this movie, um, in contrast to Darling, it had more of a... Um, framing structure because that first scene is you know the woman in the road asking for help and then we finally get there um in the story um you know at that point we're not sure is it our main character or is it somebody else and then finally that's revealed and that's satisfactory you know it's actually a story that you know took us somewhere but again, so ugly. Like we want to be sympathetic to our main character, but like she does terrible things. <laughs> like she does, and she obviously, uh, you know. Um, but she does the so she ends up meeting, um, getting a ride from a woman and her child. Um, when she's out in the woods, they give her a ride back home, and she steals the baby from the woman and locks the woman up in the barn and, you know, does the same thing, cuts out her vocal cords and her eyes so that she can't scream or, or find a way home. Or run away. Yeah, and, uh, but she, I mean, from what they show us, she's very loving towards the child. She's now can have a family. <laughs> so, like, in a way, we can sympathize with her. Obviously, her, you know, her path is not uh, an admirable one. But no, I, I mean, I, I can sympathize with somebody for being mentally ill, but there's nothing worse than you could do to a person than take their child from them. <laughs> like, and then to leave them this, this scarred husk of madness locked inside a, a barn for years. No, yeah, like... But that was weird, too, actually. That was one of the parts that I didn't fully understand, um, you know, from her point of view, because, I mean, she locked up the first guy because, what does she say to him? She says, um, you're my, you're only, my friend. only friend. Yeah, why would I kill you? You're my only friend. Yeah. And so, but now she's got the boy, and that's what she wants to make her family. So I don't really understand why she kept the mother. I mean, she could have just killed the mother. I don't know. But Maybe that would have been wrong. <laughs> Yeah. But, like, I was honestly starting to wonder if, like, the, how real the uh, prisoners were until that scene happened. Because once the boy actually saw it, it's like, 
did she kill them and like she just sees them and uh, or goes in there to talk to the dead bodies the same way she was trying to talk to her mom and trying to talk to her dad but no she definitely kept them alive for years yeah that didn't even occur to me actually i i always i took it at face value the whole way through for some reason it was just so extreme (laughs) like yeah but um, that was actually you were talking about um, just the um, the visuals and the beautiful filming. Um, the scene where um, the first guy Charlie, when he she unchains him, brings him into the house, and cleans him up so that she could presumably sleep with him, which is gross. Ugh, just gross. But um, she wakes up and he's run away and we see him through the window in the yard and she watches him for a while and then the shot stays there and she goes outside and then, um, you know, has to kill him. She's hug-stabbing him. But that whole sequence was just really visually stunning, actually. It's like, that is the thing that, like, this movie really has that I think Darling doesn't is that the images stuck with me and like yeah. it, it kind of hung in the air after I turned off the movie I was like wow I, I watched something there like again it worked in that art way where it kind of hurt my brain but uh, also left me curious and fascinated and again I'm gonna give him a pass on the ring movie I would be curious to see another film made by this guy um but uh, it's strange. It's another one of these horror movies that, like, I have a lot of respect for it, but it'd be a hard one to recommend to somebody. Or Like, who is this movie for? <laughs> yeah. It's like a... It's not really a torture porn movie. I mean, it is violent, but for all we're describing, it feels like you see more than you do in the movie. <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with just her emotionless way that she carries everything out I mean she does like I was trying to remember when she kills the woman that she picks up at the bar I can't remember was she upset about that I think she was upset at a few things in the movie but for some reason I can't remember what those were but she seemed just you know to have no emotion when she was doing the rest of her slicing and dicing it's just what she does it's actually almost calming for her it seems yeah it was interesting this one yeah and uh interesting will will take it over the line for me dude she needs a therapist you've been wanting out of this stupid relationship for like a year now and don't forget about all of the beautiful swedish women you'll meet in june okay guys that's not her again seriously babe what's happening danny I was so very sorry to hear about what happened. I'm sorry. I invited Danny to come to Sweden. You know what she's been going through? Christian says you've got this special week planned. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. On... Believable. Welcome and happy midsummer. Skull! What time is it? 9 p.m. That can't be right. The sky is blue. This is what 9 p.m. is like here. <laughs> How long have you two been together? Just over three and a half years. Four years. Really? Yeah. <laughs> 
What do you think? It's like another world. Tomorrow's a big day. So Ari Aster uh, had done this movie, Hereditary, which I reviewed very recently on the podcast with Mr. Matthew Risley. We were both big fans of it, but I, I said that the movie kind of hurt me. <laughs> like, it was so <clears throat> psychologically ugly and fierce that it, it did. It felt like it scarred me. Uh, I was curious to see his follow-up, Midsummer, and uh, I have a hard time saying which of the two I think is a better movie, honestly. But I think Midsummer is a movie that would be easier to approach again and revisit for me. Um, not that it isn't bleak and dark, but that it is such a distinct and interesting horror movie. I mean, it gets compared to The Wicker Man, and I absolutely understand that comparison. But as far as an, a modern example of a, first of all, a horror movie that takes place almost entirely in daylight, and that is, uh, it's about a cult, but... Uh, it's sort of not the stabby, murdery cult aspect of the movie, which is troubling and disturbing. It's the character arc, the this this woman, this Florence Pugh character going through, like the environment that she's already in. She's sort of surrounded by poisonous people, and she goes with this group of poisonous people and enters a group of even more poisonous people, and finds her home and her happiness there. At the cost of everyone around her. Uh, it is not a feel-good number, but it is an impressive piece of filmmaking. And I have to say, the lead actress, Florence Pugh, blew me away when I saw this movie. Just the range of emotion that she's asked to portray, the arc of her character, and that ending that feels kind of like a happy ending somehow, even though it is the bleakest, darkest ending that you could possibly imagine. Uh, we see her smiling at the end of the movie. <laughs> and at the beginning of the movie, she has lost her, her sister, who's clearly, clearly out of her mind, uh, and had a long history of mental illness, kills herself and her parents, completely orphaning the Florence Pugh character. And she has this terrible boyfriend, and this terrible boyfriend has a bunch of terrible dudes that he hangs out with. And she's got no safety net around her. She's got no genuine support system around her. She is ostensibly going through this nightmare completely alone. And as she gets taken to this 90-year uh, midsummer festival, um, where are they? I'm trying to remember where it was located. Anyway, uh, in Middle Europe somewhere. They're in Sweden. Sweden. Uh, let's say Sweden. It's not super important, but uh, it's a not, once every 90 year festival. It's happening during the peak season of the year where there's almost no nightfall. There's the, the sun is shining like 20 hours a day or whatever. And um, she is taken in by these people and she needs a home. She needs a family. She is like a vessel of pain and need and in a weird way this cult is there for her and yet the movie is completely chilling <laughs> so uh, I'm a big fan of Midsummer. I think I tipped my hand there uh, and Ari Oster very interesting filmmaker I would be very curious to see what else he's got in his catalog so yeah I'm going to add on to the pile of everyone else who says Midsummer was a great modern horror movie that even though you can see its influences it felt new and fresh to me while i was watching it 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Uh, I find it difficult to even organize my thoughts because there's <laughs> so much to con- comment on, but um, just from the visual, just to start with the visual aspect, I mean, we're, we're in, you know, a beautiful, beautiful scenery, um, and all of the transitions, or a lot of the transitions were super interesting, the way they were filmed. Um, for example, uh, when they're going to leave on the trip, she goes into the bathroom, and then from above we see she transfers into the bathroom of the airplane. That was really cool. And when they've arrived in Sweden, and they're driving down the road, and the um, the camera just pulls up and the road's upside down for a while. That was really cool to look at. And then when we finally arrive at the destination, um, we have soundtrack music in the bathroom and then I'm in the, in the background, part of me, and as <laughs> I'm still in the bathroom. <laughs> and, you know, as the camera pans, we see that, oh, they're actually playing this music. It's not just background music. You know, all of those just lovely, subtle things were just really great. And then, of course, everyone's in their festive garb and it just looks fantastic and otherworldly in a way and maybe we're in a different time, you know? Like, just, yeah, just visually it was just top-notch it's also interesting because you're so focused on the Florence Pugh character that you kind of don't pay attention as much to everyone else because she's just magnetic but like this guy who's bringing them to the festival is an interesting character upon watching the movie again and uh like I I don't know if he specifically selected her knowing that she was going to be the May Queen or whatever it was but uh I'm pretty sure he brought these people knowing that they would end up sacrifices to the festival and yes, that, that I definitely agree with. I don't know that um, later on they sort of suggest that maybe he already had her in mind for the May Queen um, because someone congratulates him on his selection. Gift, sort of. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. She still had to succeed at all of the trials. Um, but uh, yeah. They start, at first it's just like kind of weird and fun. They're, they're trying to see, sort of seeping in the local culture. They're doing some uh, hallucinogenics and they're running around in circles. And uh, there's a lot of women who are being very sexually aggressive. And they have, of course, they have the, uh, the sort of um, the friend who has all the sidebar comments that are really funny. Like, oh, we're, so we're just going to ignore the bear? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But again, he was being very disrespectful of the festival, was he not? And he was. Well, he pissed on the ancient tree, and he right. feel bad about it. <laughs> I just had to yeah. pee. Uh, he was he, sort of emblematic of the, the ultimate asshole American tourist. Exactly. How was I supposed to know? He was an ancient. <laughs> Put a sign tree. up. Say, "Don't <laughs> piss here." <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, so, I'm gonna piss wherever I want. Exactly. So he had but there's a turning point, and the turning point happens when they uh, follow the procession to these cliffs, and uh, some of the older members, the octogenarians of the cult, climb up to the top and fall to their deaths in extremely graphic measures, too. Like, it's one of those things where you're expecting the camera to pull away, and the camera does not pull away. <laughs> Ooh. 
and like these people are, are, are dying they're sacrificing themselves and uh, it's a horrifying thing to witness especially when you're not prepared for it and I think it's interesting how everybody reacts a little bit differently like there's even one end of the spectrum where like I guess we gotta be respectful about their wishes and then there's another end of the spectrum is like I need to get the fuck out of here what the hell am I doing this is insane and in a weird way both of those reactions seem somehow believable yeah oh yeah for sure and yeah. doesn't die right away and so they have to go over with their huge mallet and finish him off and they do it in a very sort of drawn out precise way too <laughs> like put him out of his misery yeah. <laughs> but that's the scene like uh, in the other in, in any other horror movie where you just say like well everybody should get away from these people they're clearly this is not an okay place to be but I no, believe no, them sticking it out like I believe oh, sure. them They volunteered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you'll understand. It's, it's totally fine. It's just how it goes. Yeah. And uh, going back to what you said about is no one going to mention the bear? The bear does come up later on. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> uh, poor Christian. <laughs> poor Christian, yes. It's interesting how, like, the boyfriend, he is such an asshole, but... <laughs> But devil's advocate, she just lost her entire family. Is he really going to dump her right now and then leave her to be suffering alone? Like, it's all obligation to him. He doesn't love her. He isn't into her anymore, but he feels this obligation to her. So he's in... No, at all, at all. He won't. He won't throw her away. But that's as much as he can offer her. It seems. But does he deserve to be burned alive? (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. It had to be him or the other guy. So maybe he deserved it more than the other guy. No, of course he didn't deserve to be burned alive. Yeah, it's just interesting because I've I've heard people talk about the movie about how the ending was like a weirdly upbeat ending. Like she finally found her happiness, and I'm like, I don't think this is a happy ending, you guys. I'm gonna have to go ahead and disagree. I mean, yes, she's found a home, and yes, she'll be probably happy there, but she's mad, right? Like she has lost her humanity completely. But she's not lonely anymore, and she's not sad anymore. So it's like for her a happy ending, <laughs> but yeah. for everyone else, no. <laughs> and I like the the Pele character. He's you know as he's kind of talking her along. Um, I think one of the things he the way he phrases is is I've always been held. I've always been held by my family. Have you ever felt held? And the answer is a big fat no for her. And you know when they're having the scenes where she has, uh, oh she she's witnessed the um, the approved mating 
of her boyfriend with uh, the Maya character, which uh, that's a really okay. crazy scene. <laughs> yeah, especially the woman, the old lady who's like pushing him from behind. <laughs> but anyway, so like she's, um, you know, just um, crying in pain and they all started crying with her and that's all she wanted you know that's what she wanted from her boyfriend Empathy. you know after yeah after and they're just doing it like in a very physical um you know like overt way well with her. same thing when they light the fires there are people who are still alive in the fire who are screaming and the crowd suffers with them yes as yes, they yeah. as they're in the fire uh the whole part of the raison d'etre of the cult is empathy um, both, you know, for good things and bad things, the community feels it together. It doesn't happen to one person. It happens to all of them. And again, our lead character needs that so much. Yeah. Yeah. But there's this, not even bittersweet, uh, it reminds me of the ending of Let the Right One In. Mm-hmm. You know, the vampire. Did you ever see that one? The little boy gets everything he wants. He finally has a friend. He's no longer bullied, and yet it's a terrible ending, right? Because right, he's now yeah tied to her forever. And that's but. sort of how I feel about Midsummer. Like she is happy. She got what she wants, but now she's tied to this evil place forever. Oh, the, the looked, movie's looked, powerful. Yeah, she looked miserable though when after they crown her and they, there's a shot of her with her face. She just looked just miserable, and then um, you know she gets over it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but no, her smile at the end um, was apt. I think it was it was good. It was like perfect. It was a perfect amount of smile I guess I'm trying to say and with the raising music and the raising flames and the bright imagery like it's a powerful ending of the movie like it lands completely I'm just amazed that some people think it's a happy ending because that was not my interpretation of it at all well that would be it's the same kind of happy ending as if you would want to say that um, being John Malkovich is a happy ending right It worked out for a couple of the characters. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Are you okay? I couldn't find you. Seriously walking. I'm fine. How's my little zombie face this morning? I made a coffee. I could be human. What's going on with you? You feel distant, different. Something happened in the woods. What's this? They're mosquito bites. They don't look like bug bites. You're acting crazy. You should leave. He's not safe. What's going on? We need to leave. You can't. Where did you put the keys? Where are the keys? 
out there? We shine in the light. I want to protect you. Where is my wife? You look like her, but you're not her. Something bad happened to me. Something bad happened to me in the woods. So Honeymoon is a different movie than we've been talking about so far and that I don't necessarily think it's about someone who is already damaged that becomes crazy. Something external happens to our main character in this movie that changes her very suddenly. But I do think that the movie taps into a, a, a real fear that people have of like, you're with somebody, you, you, you commit to that person, you, you tie your life to them. And then, because everything does, they have the audacity to change. <laughs> yeah, okay. How is it that you're not the same person that I met 25 years ago? How dare you, sir? <laughs> but uh, what this does is that, is what if that happened right now? Like, all of a sudden, like, there was no gradual process of the change. The change just happened. Uh... The night before, the woman that you were with loved you. The next day, she seems completely not interested in you and detached from everything and really not giving good answers as to why. Like, she doesn't almost even care enough to think of a reasonable lie. <laughs> yeah, I'm not giving any answers. That's right. And uh, just not even clocking the change. Like, remember yesterday when we were, like, newlyweds and all over each other and everything was tickety-boo? And now, like, like... We can't pretend that nothing is happening, but that's what couples will do, right? They'll just pretend that nothing is happening for as long as possible, to sustain normalcy as long as possible. The, like I say, the main difference is these lights in the skies, these aliens or whatever it is that, that have been messing with her are, are, are the catalyst for the change. It wasn't anything else. It wasn't some flaw in him or her. It was something that happened to her. But the horror of the movie uh, is like the person you're with has changed dramatically and they were not helping you. What can you do about it? And I think that's a very relatable fear. <laughs> I think that the cast is really good. Um, I've only known um, Rose Leslie. I guess she had a small part in Game of Thrones. And uh, I was trying to remember where I saw this Harry Treadway from. He was in Attack the Block. <laughs> that's where I recognized him from. But... Uh, I, I, I don't know. I like both of their, these actors. I think they have good chemistry. I believe them when they're in love with each other, and I believe them when they're not connecting. So um, it's an interesting movie, I guess, uh, in the end. The, the question is, and as I've asked with so many of these art house movies, what did it all mean? <laughs> what do we take from it? Um, that's what I took from it. What did Mireille take from it? <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I 
couldn't, I don't know, and, and because of that, I just didn't get into it, and I was just waiting for it to end. I just didn't connect with this movie really at all, just because, and plus I was distracted that she kind of had a very Emma Stone-ish voice. She was distracting me with her Emma Stone-ishness. <laughs> Well, I, I didn't necessarily connect the Emma Stoner thing, but as far as being frustrated by uh, the failure to answer questions or even more so the failure to ask a follow-up question, like if someone gives you an answer that is just clearly categorically false, follow it up, like make them back that up, right? Don't just say, okay, <laughs> because then you're, you're, you're playing along, you're entering their world, but... I mean, I do think that that's true. It's the same crux, and I complained about it when we talked about it in Rosemary's Baby. Like, these people are clearly manipulating and fucking with you. Fight back. Ask a hard question. Make them answer you clearly. Like, uh, they're making all these demands of you. You should be able to make a demand of your own. And she never does. And that frustrated me in Rosemary's Baby. So I think that I can relate to that here. Um, and this is clearly not as good a movie as Rosemary's Baby, but I, I, I liked that relatable feeling of being utterly helpless on what to do about this person that you love suddenly changing. If it was Cronenberg, she'd be turning into a fly or something like this, right? And you'd just be having to deal with it. But, like, I think that's what's really driving him crazy. He can't put his finger on what this was until she tells him and finally, like, there, there was a light and this put something inside of her and that really graphic birthing sequence that takes place yeah, that was but once that happens then well we have to get away from this place right like we need like honeymoon over <laughs> uh, and yeah like her childhood buddy and his wife are acting strange too but I mean it seems weird to be too judgmental of them considering what's happening to you guys like it didn't seem like a huge jump to say well maybe something weird is also happening to them but he kind of went to the jealous boyfriend thing right yeah and that was another thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way you know i mean all she had to do was answer a question of you know oh i knew him when we were kids and you know explain a little bit but no she just leaves it hanging so that we you know he has to wonder is there some sexual tension here is something gonna happen is he you know is he a freaky weirdo like but I don't necessarily think it's about him being alpha male about it either. Like, he feels like something has to have made this happen. Something has changed. If not him, what yeah, would it no, be? But it's, it's her who won't answer any questions. And I understand that at some point, whatever's inside her is taking over, and that's what's not answering the questions. Like, I, I get that, that she's not maybe able to take control the whole time. But, like, up until the point where he's tying her to the bed and, you know, making demands of her i think she was fully capable of you know saying more than she did yeah and he was sort of sensing that at that point but it did seem to get escalate awfully quickly mm. and i think that that could be a weakness of the film too again like I, I like the vibe that they're going for and, and i think the actors went a long way for me but like how much of her is inside whatever like she's clearly being possessed or fucked with in some way like uh yeah 
So, like, she says that she's going to make breakfast, but she forgets how to make breakfast. She says that she's going to make coffee, but she forgets how to make coffee. Like, does she not know that she's going to forget how to make coffee? Like, those are good telltale weird signs that something's off, but, like, why did she do that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and they kind of hint at... Um that maybe this does date to before times because she acts all weird about him when he makes a joke about her uterus or whatever. I can't remember what the joke actually was, but makes a joke about her getting pregnant and she gets totally um, offended, defensive and weird about it. And so to me that says, oh, like this is kind of like a foreshadowing or something like that. But And the way she was with Will that you know, something is was there from before, and maybe they shouldn't have gone on their goddamn honeymoon to the stupid cabin in, in the woods, you know? Like, this is kind of her fault. <laughs> I don't know. That's how I saw it. Well, and uh, the, we see the parallel story happening with the neighbors uh, sort of slowly being revealed, or that she was hiding her husband under the water, right? <laughs> yeah, he'll be safe there. Yeah. Um, and again, I think that that was a really powerful scene. She ends up saying that she needs to protect him from the outsiders, the alien, whatever it is. Uh, she's going to hide him. She renders him unconscious. He wakes up on a boat with this chain wrapped around his legs and the chain hooked up to an anchor. And, like, she drops it basically the second he wakes up. So he's watching that line disappear and his life disappear with it. And, like... It's a powerful moment, but, like, I, I wanted more from her in that scene. If there was anything left of her in, like, I wanted to see it. <laughs> because at that point, it was like, well, was there anything left of her at any point? Like, what took her so long <laughs> to do this? If, if, if that's what's going to happen. But the look of, like, horror and betrayal on his face, I wanted to see it echoed back in hers. But um, did she really believe that she was hiding him under the water is that where her real place was or was she completely gone at that point and i think it might be a weakness of the movie that there's no real answer there but i didn't feel as like burned by the ending as i did by in darling like we didn't get to see what was in the room we don't get to see what's in the light but we do get to see both of the women walk out into it and that that this was an external force it wasn't the women it wasn't madness it wasn't you know there was no misdirection in that way uh, sort of like uh with with again going back to rosemary's baby their their fate were sealed basically from the moment they saw that light and that's sort of the horror and tragedy i guess of it yeah it's heavy it's not a feel-good number but I guess you either connect to it or you don't and that's what i was talking about at the introduction with these arty movies i guess you take the ride or you don't. I, I didn't take the ride with Darling. I did with the eyes of my mother. I'm sort of in the middle with Honeymoon and that I see a lot that I like about it. I find it chilling and I find the horror in it kind of a relatable, tangible, everyday horror, which if you can tap into a vein of something like that, I think can really be effective. So um, I don't know. I'd say if, you, if, if the conversation made you curious to check it out, for sure check it out. But um, yeah. It seems in the the weird way too in this bunch the most kind of straightforward of the movies. 
Like, there's nothing overtly arty about the presentation. Some of the reveals are held from us, but, like, I kind of feel like of all the movies, this one exists closest to being in the real world. Okay, yeah, I'll say that. I was The reason I was hesitating is because I thought Mandy was pretty straightforward. Revenge! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in another planet. <laughs> With big dreams... Some girls crack under the pressure. You, you're going to be great. What's it feel like to walk into a room? It's like in the middle of winter. You're the sun. everything. You know what my mother used to call me? Dangerous. You're a dangerous girl. She was right. I am dangerous. Nicholas Wending Refn, or as he kind of pretentiously stamps his initials at the beginning of the film, NWR, he, he's made uh, some interesting, visually strong movies. I think Drive was a really interesting and visually strong movie. Um, and uh, I've totally blanked on the name of the one. He did this movie with Mads Mikkelsen, very violent, uh, sort of medieval set visceral movie but the name escapes me but he's definitely got his own specific style and his own sort of approach to doing things and i think the more he's established himself as nicholas wending refin auteur the more he's kind of got lost in the stink of his own farts a little bit <laughs> the neon demon is unmistakably arty farty like it it, it, it wears its badges of this very, very honestly and proudly. It's going to be a devastating, mean-spirited attack, bleak satire almost, on the fashion industry. And uh, it's going to take its time. It's going to be all about powerful, sharp images, strong soundtracks, slow camera pans, and the, the slow unraveling of this story. We have a teenage, uh, Elle Fanning plays this teenage model. She's supposed to be, I think, 16 in the movie. And uh, she is being consumed, shall we say, into the world of high fashion. And it's portrayed in that very Lynchian sort of, <laughs> this whole industry is run by the devil, you know? <laughs> and everybody in it, the bigger they smile at you, the, the less you should trust them. Uh, there's some interesting actors that show up throughout the movie, and um, it definitely has a very strong vibe and distinct identity. And I'm not a big fan. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. I hated this movie. Okay, we're on the same page. I thought maybe that Honeymoon was going to be the one that you were talking about, but no. Um, I just, again, I guess I said it with Darling. I understood 
very quickly what this guy was doing and what he was going for. I got it, and it went on for two hours, and I wanted it to be over so much sooner yeah, than it was. It was I mean, I guess it was successful in that, yes, it expresses that the pursuit of youth and physical beauty is, you know, to the detriment of everybody. Oh, hot take. Like, what? I mean, who cares? It's not... And that's not a deep or, you know... Unsubtle. Like I said, she is consumed by the fashion industry. Literally. Okay. Brilliant. Now let's draw it out as long as possible. (laughs) And I guess it had... um, I mean, they string us along for a little bit um, with her being innocent and sweet and we don't know how she's going to end up. But as soon as she makes her declaration, she sends her nice um, date off packing when he says that, um, you know, looks don't matter or whatever. He, he says something like that and then she, you know, turns him away because she is going to enter this world of just awfulness. Um, after that, it's like, well, I mean... Who cares? <laughs> it also, I don't know, it it, it it seems like such a female world, female perspective, like that you almost, if you're going to tell the story yet again, you almost need a woman to be telling it. Like, I, I ended up feeling weirdly bad for Jenna Malone, who she plays one of the witches in, <laughs> I guess you could call them these, uh, who is preying upon Elle Fanning. She also did another movie called Sucker Punch, which was... I didn't see that. That's fine, because it's terrible. But it's a similar idea where they're, like, trying to tell this feminist story, but they're handling it so clumsily that it's actually kind of embarrassing by way of almost offensive at times. And she's done two of these now. She did Sucker Punch and The Neon Demon. And she's been in Hollywood since she's been a little kid. I remember watching this scene because my mind was wandering because there's lots of air in the proceedings. Jenna Malone, like, walking around topless, hosing off the pool patio. And I'm just... I felt bad for her. I felt bad for the actress. And I, like, I just felt, like, completely unplugged from the movie. And the movie wants you to be hypnotized, sort of, like lost in its atmosphere and drooling at all the images but it it just kept on kicking me out of it like I couldn't focus on the movie like my mind was almost being forced to wander in other directions mm-hmm. well and it was so self-consciously about the images right I mean sure they related to the story but I mean you have um, Jenna Malone pissing on the floor in the moonlight you have the two models in a, a blood shower you have jenna malone you know in a blood bath you have her like on top of a corpse making out with a corpse you have you know her um lying in a grave smoking a cigarette i mean it was just like <laughs> the guy had all these images that oh this will look great on film and it'll be shocking but it should mean something. Yeah. It should mean something. It should have some emotional power to it. When uh, our main protagonist gets pushed into the deep end of a swimming pool and has this drawn-out death, I should feel something. <laughs> All I was feeling was, we must be getting close to the end. <laughs> well, and they had made us not like her 
yeah. because she had made her declaration of oh I'm only into beauty and I'm better than all of you and you guys wish you were me which so, was true to an yeah. extent <laughs> well, and you know they wanted to consume her and everything so like we don't like them either but no. they made us not like her before they killed her so there could have maybe been some pathos or some tragedy to the movie but already at 16 uh she wasn't you know going to be doing this uh also the choice of casting al fanning like i, I guess when lending reffin was like she is the look and she has to look really young but it was a compromise because he'd wanted there's this scene uh, early in the movie where she gets covered in gold paint for a photo right. shoot yeah, and Harrington that's right to her. A, a, a yeah. terrible terrible photographer in the modeling agency a pretentious top, top photographer Who'd have thought they'd have gone there? But I guess originally he had these like really graphic ideas of like sort of like the James Bond golden uh, sort of like nudity and being smeared all over. But because she was underage, he couldn't do that scene. <laughs> oh, that's why the movie didn't, you know. So it's, it, it showed restraint only when it was legally obligated to. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I. It. It. it I'm not like crossing him off the list. I'm not saying I'll never watch another one of his films, but he's definitely on notice for me <laughs> for this movie. I haven't seen Only God Forgives. Apparently that's terrible as well, but he has made interesting movies in the past. And uh, I just think this is not the right marriage of subject for him. Or again, generally, it just, it, it seems really tired to me. Like you said, the fashion industry is corrupt. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for being there for us, Hollywood. <laughs> and it does end up feeling gross and gross. No, it ends up feeling gross and exploitive, uh, even if it's trying to make this statement about how this is bad. It, it, the way we are asked to linger over all of this, it's not necessarily erotic, but it is graphic and and you know, a lot of naked parts <laughs> for the sake of yeah. naked parts, and. Uh, yeah, the Lady Bathory legend, if you can bathe in the in the blood of the young and the beautiful, it will retain your... I, we get it. Thank you. <laughs> but let's do a slow-mo shower scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, and, I mean, uh, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> so, of course, they've, um, you know, they, they've eaten the poor Elle Fanning, and the two shoot and one of them starts getting an upset stomach because sometimes that happens when you know you eat another person and she could have cooked her or something yeah and so she uh throws up an eyeball and the other girl picks up the eyeball and eats it yeah. i mean <clears throat> she throws up an eyeball and then kills herself by cutting into herself Yes. So, so, so uh, I guess she felt a little bit of buyer's remorse when all was said and done. But the other girl doesn't flinch at all. In fact, eats the vomit. <laughs> well, the yeah. eye vomit. I mean, eating anything that somebody else has thrown up is just <laughs> not. And a this good is thing, the stinger. This is what we're going to leave you with. <laughs> this <Yeah>. is like. <laughs> and then she saunters off to a successful modeling, modeling career. Keanu 
Reese? Why Christina Hendricks? What the hell was going on? Well, Why Christina Hendricks has worked with him before. Uh, and Keanu Reeves has a history of, like, doing smaller parts in interesting directors' movies. Like, it's just sort of a way he kind of, st- like, keeps himself in the in the Hollywood system. But, yeah, he's, he's like, uh, the guy who runs a hotel that Elle Fanning's staying at, who chases yeah. a, 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 a tiger out of, or a, a, a cougar. Mountain lion. Mountain lion, there it was. Yeah. Out oh, of her he's, room. And, he's just a gross, horrible man. Yeah. But I mean, uh, but where does he fit into the rest of the movie? I I don't think he does really. <laughs> no, no. But you're right. Keanu Reeves is in it. Christina Hendricks, I think, uh, has a working relationship with him, and it was just a small sort of, you know, she's a terrible woman at an audition role. But uh, I don't know. I didn't mind seeing her because I I just like her as an actress. Oh, for sure. I was just wondering, like, what in the world? Are those two parts could have been played by anybody. Why? Why are there? in this I just thought it was weird well he did a movie called Bronson uh, I've seen Bronson yeah and if you watch that movie you think wow this guy would be really interesting right yeah so I can see as an actor looking at some of his other films and saying yeah I I, want to work with this guy but no the Neon Demon is I think hot garbage I'm actually glad that you agreed with me on it because it's one of those ones that like people will react strongly to some people think it's genius, and other people don't. I am in the latter column where I think it's the opposite of genius. I mean, I think you have to be, on some level, a, a talented filmmaker to make a movie this pretentious and bad. <laughs> but <laughs> if he was a more amateur filmmaker, it wouldn't look as good. And it, it, it would be somehow less frustrating because I'd be like, oh, well, he's trying, <laughs> you know. But I get the feeling this is exactly what the man wanted on screen. And it, it's, it's, it's out of tune. It's really off tune for me. Like, I didn't learn anything from it. I wasn't impressed by it. I actually kind of was close to angry. Yeah, absolutely. And also, um, with regard to his, um, you know, wanting particular images, the opening scene is Elle Fanning getting photographed and... As as, if dead. Yeah, she she looks dead, there's blood pooling around, and it's, you know, this visual kind of beautiful in quotation marks shot but it's the nice boyfriend who's the photographer who's trying to break into the photographer industry and that is not in keeping with his character that we're seeing later on at all like his personality is not at all like um you know indicative that he would be into this like gore photo shoots and stuff it just doesn't fit doesn't make sense nobody in this movie is real and nobody in this movie feels real. Uh, and it kind of, as a result, keeps you at arm's length. Agree. So what you gonna do with that thing? I'm going hunting. So what you hunting? It's crazy evil! You think you're so... In love, I'll show you love. Oh, man, they wronged you. You exceed the cosmic darkness. It glowed from within, strange and eternal. 
and I just said about Neon Demon and Demon that nobody in it feels real <laughs> and the world doesn't seem real, couldn't the exact same thing be said of Mandy? But in that uh, I was being pushed away and aggravated by Neon Demon, I felt myself getting weirdly hypnotized and drawn into Mandy. So once again, we have these two polarizing reviews and that the movies in a weird way share a lot in common in that they're not bringing anything new to the table and they're just bringing aggressive style. But in the way that the Neon Demon didn't work for me, Mandy largely did. I do think it goes on a little bit longer than it should. I think like 90 to 100 minutes probably would have done better than two hours. But I just sat staring at the psychedelic purple world of Mandy, feeling drool coming out of the corner of my mouth. And it's not a necessarily, you know, you're not going to learn anything when you watch Mandy, you know. Uh, oh, thumbs up, we are. Maybe I'll save it for later when we get into the story. But okay. we do learn one thing, yes. An well, important lesson. Nick will tell us what maybe we learned from Mandy. But, uh, um, basically, this is an exercise in style. And usually, I'm not big on a style as substance movie. But Mandy is the exception, I guess, that disproves the rule. Because even though I was fighting it for a while, and I do think I was kind of starting to fold my arms and say, come on, start moving, get, get out of the mud, people. I understood eventually after the first 40 minutes that the vibe of this movie was not that it ever gets into a high gear. That this was an experience that you just had to, like, endure. <laughs> That's Mandy. Uh, and it is... A very distinct movie. It, it's sort of famous for like reigniting interest in Nicolas Cage, who'd been doing like so many direct-to-video, forgotten and unwatched movies that it, it was almost starting to become you know sad stage Nicolas Cage. <laughs> but he found a movie that matched his own sort of tenor of madness, and because the movie does move slow, when the emotional peaks and outbursts happen. They have real power. They really count. When shit goes down in this movie, you're like, good God. <laughs> and uh, that's the experience of watching Mandy. It is a psychedelic, slow-march horror movie centered by an absolutely off-the-hook Nicolas Cage. And if that sounds appealing to you, watch Mandy. If it doesn't, don't watch Mandy. <laughs> Yes, it is. I, I enjoyed the bonkersness of this one. I, uh, okay, well, visually I did have my um, sort of plus side, negative side reactions because I did like the whole, you know, the color and the washes to a point. I did think that got a bit much in, in some spots, but... You know, but it works. But I really loved the um, fantasy illustrations. You know, his dream sequences and stuff like that. I thought those were really lovely, and they they fit in just nice. And those were those were great. And um, let's see, the cult leader. <laughs> he <laughs> uh, he was. I think when that's what I thought of when you said that okay, it's time to get going. I kind of felt that when he was giving his speech after they had kidnapped Mandy and he was kind of, 
you know, whatever, doing his... Offering himself to her. Yeah, proselytizing <laughs> or whatever he was doing, yeah. That that was a bit much, but once we got past that point, I thought it, uh, it got going pretty good. But I do think you're right. Like, he would get a visual idea, a trick in his head, and then he would just play it and play it and play it and play it. There's scenes where he's talking and uh, Mandy's face keeps flashing over top of his and then his face fades back in and then Mandy's face fades back up in this weird sort of psychedelic thing. And I think it would have been really effective if he'd just done it a couple of times. <laughs> but it kind of goes to the well too much. Um, but I love how scary the cultists were and how their eyes were all glassy and fucked. There's this backstory that the cultists had, had pissed off this guy that was cooking for him, so he gave him this bad batch, which perma-fucked them, like, which just made them embrace their darkest corners and uh, become somehow less than human. Uh, they've been traveling around causing trouble all over the place, but to the great unluckiness of this couple uh, Nicholas Cage and his companion uh, are spotted by them and the leader takes a like to her, to Mandy steals her and kills her brutally <laughs> in front of the Nicholas Cage character yes, and, and this actually um, they actually film that um, maxim that, you know, because they talk about men uh, and women like the, the thing a woman is most afraid of is or the thing that a man is most afraid of is that a woman will laugh at him. The thing a woman is most afraid of is that he's going to fucking kill her. Yeah. That's exactly what happened in this movie. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, and but now we come to the life lesson of the movie. If you are a cult leader and you are going to kill the love of someone's life right in front of them, you should probably go ahead and kill that guy too. Yeah. You know, you don't just leave them for dead and allow them to exact terrible revenge. Or, like, frame it like you're doing some great favor to them. <laughs> yeah. No, that's never going to work out. It's just never going to work out. And you hate him and you hate, like, the, the his acolytes who look at, uh, look at Nicolas Cage and shame him for being so unworthy of even being in their presence and like ooh I don't like these people (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Bill Duke shows up in the movie Um, he's a great filmmaker director in his own right but everybody knows him as the dude from Predator (laughs) this is this uh, really tough bald black guy who I just I, I haven't seen in front of the camera for a while he's been doing most of his work behind it He's the guy who sort of lets Nicolas Cage know where these guys are going to be and basically tells him, if you're going into this fight, you should probably go into it thinking you're going to lose. Yeah, yeah and he was, uh, he was holding the Reaper for Nicolas Cage. That's right. Yes. Um, I love that Nicolas Cage um, can forge his own weapons. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> It's a, that's an interesting skill set that you have in your little background there. Yeah, very good. So, i got to ask, what did you think of the grief tantrum that Nicolas Cage throws in the movie? There's a famous scene where he gets back to his trailer, he drinks a bottle of vodka, and he's in his underwear and sits on a toilet, and he screams, and it's just this steady shot of Nicolas Cage losing his mind for like four minutes. Yeah. was why do you keep liquor in the bathroom but then I read something after that said like maybe he's a recovering alcoholic 
like so maybe you hide it in stupid places so fine whatever but it reminded me of that um that movie with scarlett johansson and um what's his name kylo ren um oh, a marriage story where he has that outburst and people were talking about how great his acting I was like oh my god no I hated that scene I thought it was like totally put on and I felt the opposite of that for Nicolas Cage in this scene and I kind of I don't know I thought that was curious in my own mind why this one seemed real and totally fine and the other one I just hated it and it made me cringe well again Mandy's not necessarily set in the real world Um, so I think it gets us a little bit of room with that and it is Nicolas Cage. I think that Nicolas Cage can do certain things that other actors couldn't do. Like, I think Tim Robbins is an amazing actor, but I don't think Tim Robbins was going to give us that. <laughs> you know, like, that was strictly Nicolas Cage. But, like, you see him screaming to the point where he is losing his sense of identity. Like, he has been so wronged and he is so helpless to feel anything but misery that all he can do is sit and scream and I thought it was kind of amazing like I'm not it's not a happy scene but I was like holy shit (laughs) like you don't really need anything else to be on board for this vengeance to take place and people talk about how revenge movies are appeal to our basest nature and that they're they're not necessarily good stores from a moral perspective and like yeah, you've been wrong. Someone killed your son. Someone raped your daughter, and you're gonna track them down and kill them, and then credits will roll. But in the end, nobody won in this scenario, right? Yeah. Mandy, I think, transcends the vengeance sort of movie, and it 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 is cheap and kind of nasty in its setup and what it is. But you want to see this vengeance played out, and it is very satisfying to see it played out, and it is gruesome <laughs> yeah and I mean I don't have the um, you know the Rolodex of horror movies in my mind that you do but I have never seen a chainsaw sword fight before <laughs> I mean maybe that happens all the time in other movies but no it's the first time for me I thought that was, uh, that was a really long chainsaw yeah I, I don't know if those really long chainsaws exist, but I have seen a really long chainsaw like that in another movie. But do they exist outside of movies, or are they, like, getting hit on the head and having amnesia? A kind of thing that only happens in the movies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and there's also the uh, Cheddar Goblin commercial, which was out of nowhere. <laughs> yes, that was kind of <laughs> But uh, again, I talked about how in Midsummer there was like a few moments where you're expecting them to cut away and they don't. Yeah, Mandy doesn't believe in cutting away. If someone's going to get their head squished, we're going to see them get their head squished. And uh, there's an interesting, because like he's wading through these cultists and killing them pretty much mercilessly. And like, again, we don't necessarily feel bad about him. But he lets that one girl walk. anything but she couldn't let's be realistic um but she was the one person who was not taking joy from this happening and she i think was 
she was the most victim as a cult member can be and uh i think that nicholas cage recognized that and didn't need to kill her she's not like she's not going home from this starting another cult <laughs> no she's going to a trauma center and she's going to just live her life she's going to work at a supermarket and it's going to be fine I, I was just curious about it because, and again, this could just be me, my perspective on it. My, my perspective of Nicolas Cage when he finally forges his weapons and sets out to kill these people is like, he's on a fucking rampage. like And he doesn't give anybody a time to like, one of the guys was like in the middle of going on one of these speeches and he just shuts him up by killing him like uh up until this point he'd been all action it was the one time where he stayed his hand and it it sort of reflected a, a more sanity than i expected existed in him at this point oh, to me it was just like it seemed completely it made sense like everybody else deserved it except her right you know um but yeah, speaking of the the guy um, with the tiger, the guy, the scientist, the guy who's making the LSD. Yeah. That was a really cool scene, I thought, because it it was a totally one sided conversation. The guy was just talking and answering his own questions, and Nicholas Cage was just standing there staring at him. And <laughs> he was, was so really... high; he looked so fucking stoned. <laughs> I don't know how they did that, but like, oh my god. <laughs> I've seen that guy. He shows up in a lot of horror movies. He's got that creepy face. And uh, I, I assumed when I knew he was going to be in the movie, he was going to be one of the big bads. I guess in this world, he's kind of a neutral figure. <laughs> Yikes. Um, it's a very one-of-a-kind movie, is Mandy. He, he's George P. Cosmatos, I believe is the name of the director. He's done uh, one other... Or Panos Cosmatos. Ah, Panos Cosmatos. Gesundheit is the name of the director. He's done one other film, but I am interested to see where he goes from here. Is this just where he is? Is 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 the Mandy world all he's got, or does he got other other things that he can show us? Um, I I I do like Mandy, but I do think it's a very distinct meal. Like typically, this isn't the type of thing that I like, but there was such precision to this. The madness was strangely hypnotizing and delicious, <laughs> but. Uh, um, it's it's fucking out there <laughs> and uh, i would definitely warn anybody going in like this is about as crazy a movie as you're likely to see so but it totally caught me off guard i was not expecting to like it as much as i did me too to be honest that's the magic of nicolas cage probably <laughs> and, and and if it brings about a renaissance in nick cage i'm all for it <laughs> i'm all for it boom So, Mireille, that was the six arty-farty horror movies that we just talked about. Um, and I, I feel like we were largely on the same page, so, like, I don't know, let's... I'm curious to see how this ranks out. Uh, I suspect that we're going to agree on the bottom of the list, but prove me wrong. <laughs> what was your least favorite of these six movies and why? Number six, The Neon Demon. What? <laughs> <laughs> It sounds cool. Yeah, it's the 
uh, I don't know. Anyways, yeah, so uh, because it was gross for no reason and the story was obvious and derivative and not interesting. Number six. Number five, I put Honeymoon because I just thought the plot didn't move along as well as it should and even though there were things that I liked about it I was it the back and forth with no answers I just found too tedious and that made me kind of disconnect from the movie number four I put Darling and the only reason actually it ranked higher than Honeymoon was just the thought of being in a huge house by myself like that and that does freak me out and I don't like that so I got that feeling from the movie and I thought that was good Number three, The Eyes of My Mother. Um, Yeah, like we said, it was an interesting story. Really, really dark. Um, Yeah, it went places I didn't expect it to go. And it was beautifully filmed. Nice, great music. Number two, Mandy, because it was delightfully bonkers. (laughs) And number one, Midsummer. I think it, like, head and shoulders above the rest. Oh, yeah. Again, that was a similar position I found myself in when we were doing a list that had Hereditary in it. I was like, well, there's Hereditary, and then there's five other movies. Yeah. Well, we definitely agreed on the top and bottom. (laughs) (laughs) And those are the important ones, Mick. Those are the ones that we care about. I guess. Uh, Yeah, the Neon Demon, definitely at the bottom of this list for me. There's something... Short of maybe a comedy, there's something about when you're failing at something this pretentious, like, that really hurts. It's like when you're trying to be super funny and it just, you lay an egg, it just becomes really, really uncomfortable and hard to watch. I got that vibe, like, right away, and it went on for two hours. (laughs) And again, it's not, not really the actor's fault, it's not even the director of photography's fault, like, it just... It does not hold together. It's just not worth your time. It's just how I feel. In fifth place, I put Darling. I did laugh a few times when I wasn't supposed to laugh at the movie, which is a big... That's a big demerit point for me. Um, but I, I also like recognize what he was going for, and I do get, like, if, if you are into that sort of 60s psychological vibe, that this could be quite a meal for you. It just wasn't quite as wasn't complete to me somehow it was missing something but uh it was a good swing micro budget horror movie it was interesting <laughs> i'm not mad at it <laughs> in fourth place i put honeymoon um again i think it was the concept that i i really latched on to this the the horror idea the jekyll and hyde idea like it's not you though it's the person that you love what do you do when the person that you love just suddenly changes and, and you don't know how, how or why they changed or what you can do about it? Like, I think there's a real meal for a horror movie. And I think another horror movie might take those same themes and go past this one. But I like, I like what they were playing with. So in fourth place, Honeymoon. Uh, in third place, The Eyes of My Mother, <laughs> which I guess it seems a little bit high. The, it's just so grim and such a nightmare of a movie. But I, I like to grade a movie on what were they trying to do and how successful were they at doing it. And I think that The Eyes of My Mother was doing everything that it was trying to do very successfully. It's not a movie that I'm going to revisit again and again, but it's effectively a well-done movie. So, yes. 
I, I think Mandy would be a number one for a lot of people. It seems like some people who like Mandy are like over the moon for it. I really, really liked it. I enjoyed it, but I maybe not over the moon for it. I think it's a very distinct meal. I think that it's one of those movies you don't just throw on, but like, who knows, five five years from now, I mean, you know what? We should watch Mandy <laughs> and it'll be like the exact right movie <laughs> for that night. But it's not something that I could see myself, you know, revisiting again and again. I think it would become diluted. The strangeness would become <laughs> diluted somehow. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. Oh, and he, um, they, they're in the middle of a forest, and he's very careless with his cigarettes. He kept <laughs> flicking them off into the... <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's why it's in second place. <laughs> the cigarette butts. And it's fake, but you know. <laughs> yes, yeah, so number one was Midsummer, uh, and I also developed quite a little crush on Florence Pugh because of this movie. I, she was in uh, the Black Widow movie as uh, Scarlett Johansson's little sister in that movie, and completely different world and different level of performance, but also very charming. Like in Midsummer, you just wanted to hug her. She just like needed, she just needed a hug so bad, and. Uh, yeah, I don't think in, in, in Black Widow she's someone who would receive a hug. <laughs> but no, big fan of that actress, big fan of that director. And uh, yeah, I understand people making the connection with The Wicker Man. But I do think it's a different and a strangely bigger movie than The Wicker Man. And, uh, I haven't seen The Wicker Man. The only thing I know about The Wicker Man is that it's on TV in the background in Shallow Grave. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's similar cults, and it has a similar, I guess we'd argue, finale. But it's handled very differently. But check out Wicker Man. I can see you having some fun with that. Okay. <laughs> it's a, definitely a weird one. <laughs> Thank you so much for making this uh, R&R work, and uh, I'm sorry if I was hassling you about it. I don't mean to be no, crawling no, up your I'm ass. Sorry. I, I, I've been so terrible about, like, I'll impose a deadline on myself so that I can get things done, and then I'm like, oh. Well, and I apologize for making you watch The Neon Demon, but I think oh, there were some other things in here that kind of helped to balance the scales a little bit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Boom. And there it was. Another episode of Ranking Review is in the rear view mirror. What do you think? Do you disagree? Were we way too hard on the Neon Demon? Or were we not hard enough on Mandy? Send your feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Check out the website at rankinreview.ca. And as we drop every other Wednesday, and you might need other things to plug into your ears, you should check out the Terror Table podcast, and you should check out... The Shelf Shedding Movie Show, hosted by my good friend, Jason DuPray. They're both local podcasts to me, and they know what they're doing and are worth your ears. I'll talk to you guys again real soon. Thank you so much for listening.